This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The Built by Bama online podcast presents T. Watts and T.R. for a Thursday, May the 21st. 2020 Travis Ryer, senior analyst there at BamaOnline.com with you. Joined, as always, by Tim Watts, site publisher of BamaOnline.com. And, Tim, I'll tell you what, I'm really excited, and I'm going to tell you why. Because, as we know, tomorrow, even in this pandemic, Friday follows Thursday. So tomorrow means the Alabama 2021 recruiting class will be getting a commitment, Tim, because that's just the way it works these days, I guess. Freaky Friday. We don't have one planned, but the last few, um, and you know, usually you can tell how excited Alabama fans have been, how slow it's been to start, because Friday's usually a very slow news cycle, as you know. When you got it, when you get hit with 17 small NCAA violations, drop it yes. on Friday. When you're firing a coach while he's under contract. Drop it on Friday. Divorcing your wife, drop it on Friday. So to see the excitement around uh, Kane Williams, Ja'Cory Brooks, it shows you, you know, not only are they good players, but also how excited Alabama fans and how, how they've wanted, you know, so, some good recruiting news for a while. And it seems like right on the heels of those commitments the last two Fridays, Tim, we've had Talia news. Talia, the previous Friday, goes into the transfer portal. And then this past Friday, we learned that he is going to take his talents to Mike Loxley and the University of Maryland. We had outlined some possibilities, certainly proximity, you thought we all thought would be a consideration with Talia. But I guess there was enough of a comfort level with Mike Loxley, Tim, and also from a football fit, when you look at what Lox is really about on the offensive side of the ball, to uh, entice the Tiger Violoas to uh, you know, for Talia to, to go up to uh, the state of Maryland. Yeah, I think, you know, when you look at that and I, I look, I thought they would stay together if possible. So yeah. we don't we don't know what Miami or South Florida or any of those southern Florida schools said to Talia as far as where he'd fit in or, you know, because, you know, you still got to find somebody that wants to take you. So but when you're you've already spent that year, might have to spend a red shirt year. You don't want to have a lot of time to waste. So go with somebody, you know. Mike Loxley obviously knows that 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 family really well. They know they know uh, uh, what he's about. They you know they play. Oh, this one's played under him for a while. So and also if you're looking for an opportunity to 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 play, Maryland's as good as anywhere. And you probably yeah. don't have the talent around you you're used to that you saw it like in Alabama. But when I did a uh, podcast with my, my Maryland, our Maryland producers, uh, Jeff Ehrman said anybody with two healthy Achilles has a pretty good chance of starting. So quarterback yeah. for Maryland. So obviously, you know, he was joking, but he was serious that they needed some talent. So he walks into a really good situation they'd be comfortable with. And let's be honest, at some point, they had to go in different directions to some degree. There's some point they just had to go in different directions as 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 they get older. So um, I think it was a smart decision for him. 
Yeah, you got Josh Jackson, I guess, up there going into his senior year, a transfer from Virginia Tech, who was the the starter for the most part for the Terps a year ago. But even if Talia has to sit this year and on the heels of the NCAA Division I Council's decision yesterday to sort of table that one-time transfer waiver until January of 2021, which would then allow it to go into effect for 2021-2022. It would seem as if Tully is looking at a sit year coming up. But even if that's the case, yeah, you still have three years of eligibility remaining. Jackson moves on, and it's a walk-in type situation, you would think, for Tully in 2021. And, you know, his learning curve should be smaller because he's familiar or somewhat familiar with whatever offense Loxley's going to run. So that's another thing. You go to, you know, you're not starting completely over from scratch, which has got to help him. Yeah, no doubt. And we'll get more into some quarterback talk as we move throughout the podcast with you today. We're going to get into Saban era quarterbacks. We're going to uh, get into some guys that, like Talia, maybe it didn't work out so much for and. Uh, talk about a few guys anyway that took the transfer route out of Tuscaloosa. We're going to have that BOL roundtable mailbag, Tim. The folks like to chime in there. We got some good ones in the mailbag for you today. We'll get to those as we move throughout the program as well. There was more optimism yesterday too, Tim, for Alabama fans, for college football fans in general, because that aforementioned D1 Council of the NCAA did vote to remove or lift the moratorium on on-campus athletic activity. So uh, what you're going to see now is SEC ADs are going to come together for a recommendation on an exact date for SEC football, men's basketball, women's basketball programs to return to campus. That will likely either be June 1st or June the 15th. That recommendation will go to SEC presidents uh, tomorrow on Friday, and then we'll have a better understanding of what we're looking at in terms of, Tim, a a ramp-up to a 2020 college football season. And uh, I think it's done done wonders for the morale of the college football fan base in general. Yeah, especially when it's this early. I mean, there's just, you know, when you try to follow this thing, it's almost impossible because everyone's just basically contradicting the other one. If somebody puts out a report saying something positive and there's something negative and vice versa, it's hard to even get a grip on what's happening. You you know, we learn a little bit more about it, you know, every week seemingly um, without anybody really knowing what to say as a definite, which, you know, of course, is impossible. So you see, you know, you you see other people play and you've got German soccer. You know, you got my Korean fellas over there hitting that baseball (laughs) for weeks now. So you've seen guys play. And leagues play. So I think this is a good first step. Obviously, I think they'll be prepared if something went sideways to uh, to shut it down. But it looks like they're at least having the preparation to play, obviously figuring out about the fans. I mean, that's a huge deal. I still still can't imagine football without the fans. I just don't know what you do. Um, takes away all the home field advantage. I know that. But no fan football is better than no football. Yeah, it was interesting yesterday. Gene Smith, the athletic director at Ohio State, threw out the possibility of capacity of the horseshoe up there in Columbus, Ohio, perhaps being limited to as low as 22,000 or so for home games this fall. Uh, He didn't discount the possibility of it being as much as 50, but regardless, Gene Smith didn't talk about yesterday, even the possibility of a full stadium. 
in 2020. So it sounds like, Tim, one way or the other, whether it's no fans, whether it's limited sort of capacity, uh, it, you're right. From that standpoint, it's going to be it's going to be really different. But I, I think you hit on it, too. When given the alternative, even if it's no fans and just television, I'm pretty sure uh, folks like ours there on BamaOnline.com will take take whatever you can get at this point, Tim. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, I've been watching old sports or any sports that are current. German soccer, um, heaven forbid, I'm not even a soccer guy, so I've been desperate. UFC, like everybody else. So um, I think that tells you right there when you see how how many people are watching everything. You watching NASCAR, uh, Tim? Have you watched any no, NASCAR never, at this point? I've never. My first experience right. with NASCAR was not good. And you can bring my blame my oldest brother who passed away, <laughs> but he had I experienced the worst thing in the history. Put me in a bread truck. And Ferrari <laughs> also passed. Truck. I mean, the little girl, the little girl in the circle is on the side of this bread truck, and there's like five kids, and we're excited to be going. Where well, their cheap asses didn't want to pay, and we were hiding under a mattress. Oh my Back goodness! Up, it smelled like gasoline. Is this Talladega? Was this yes. Talladega? Okay. Yes, it was a big yes. one. Got to be so the Dega. We're, we're on the infield. They're pumped. They're on the roof. <laughs> I saw my first breast for the first time, and let me say, oh no, they are not all equal. All yeah. breasts. I saw one that was 100 miles long. It was a traumatic experience. I had uh, a little high on gasoline. I had nude women. Flashing us. <laughs> I was in the infield, couldn't follow what was going on. It was that's uh, called a that's called a southern bar mitzvah, is what it sounds like. You you experienced. They're all like, you had the best time ever. I was like, I assure you, it was not the best time ever Ugh. for eleven year old, <laughs> a sober one. You know, I, I didn't even I didn't even have NASCAR talk here on the agenda, but I, I can't I couldn't be more happy now that I just even asked about it after getting that story. So. Sometimes, uh, you know, what, what you're not angling for, you get way more than you expect. And we like that here on the T Watts and TR podcast. So, Tim, as we sort of turn this thing back towards one of our primary topics of the day, wanted to get into some Saban era quarterbacks with you. And, you know, it's an interesting breakdown when you look at pretty much the first half of Nick Saban's time in Tuscaloosa. You had just three guys start games over a span of seven years. John Parker Wilson, Greg McElroy, A.J. McCarron, a three-year starter. So you kind of get conditioned into thinking, well, it's going to be multi-year starters, you know, kind of on a, on, a, on a regular basis here. And then you go from A.J. to Blake Sims, from Blake Sims to Jake Coker, from really Jake Coker to Cooper Bateman within that 2015 season, back to Jake Coker. Uh, then you go Blake Barnett into Jalen Hurts, Jalen Hurts into Tua Tagovailoa, and then even Mac Jones starts four games uh, a year ago due to the injuries to Tua Tagovailoa. So uh, you know, again, it's it's kind of been uh, two stories within a 13-year span at the quarterback position for Nick Saban. Yeah, and like you said, you get out to a start where you're sort of spoiled. You have such consistency there with. Uh, you know, John Parker, and then you run, you know, AJ, of course, and McElroy, um, such consistency. And after that, you know, it was, you know, and that's when that was sort of that transfer era started. I mean, Blake Barnett left at halftime of the game almost, you know, so um, there started being new rules. You saw guys that were very impatient, guys leaving, and it got crowded. I mean, you know, uh, you had David Cornwell, you had so many guys in that quarterback room, and oftentimes it was just finding the guy who would step up. And then when you had him step up, 
you had everybody else leave. So there was a there was a lot, you know, heading into that. And I mean, even with Jalen, you get a freshman starter who has a great year and he comes in and gets beat out at the end of the year by a freshman. And then Tua takes over, of course. So, I mean, overall, the quarterback situation has been one of the most interesting for Alabama. Um, yes. Especially considering like how like some of them have just like I don't know if anybody's really had much of a better career than A.J. McCarron in college. I mean, I don't think Tua did. I don't think anybody's had the career. Now, stats-wise, they might have. But, I mean, I think people forget A.J. was second in the Heisman, um, mm-hmm. had a crazy good record, national championships, the big play in LSU. I mean, that guy played in some huge, huge games. No doubt about it. Um, and we'll start with John Parker because he was the guy – that Nick Saban and that initial staff inherited from the Shula regime. And one of the benefits that that 2007, and I think it even benefited Alabama looking ahead to 2008, was that John Parker had the starting experiences of 2006. Now, that didn't parlay into an ultra-successful year for Alabama as a team in Nick Saban's first season. But when you look back at JP in that in that 2007 season 2846 passing yards 18 touchdowns 12 interceptions had guys like dj hall keith brown mike mccoy and matt cadell most remembered in that 2007 season for that game-winning touchdown catch against arkansas yes back when arkansas actually was a really good football team under houston nut um and then you you had sort of the you sort of had the the one and done with major applewhite in 2007 as the offensive coordinator. It's interesting because Major has since come back to Tuscaloosa as an offensive analyst here in the last year or two. But um, JP, I think, was kind of the epitome of rock solid and sort of what that position was about, certainly over the first half of the Saban era. When you talk about McIlwain coming in in 2008 as the offensive coordinator, really stabilized the offense and the quarterback position in general, introduced more of a pounded approach with guys like Glenn Coffey and Mark Ingram and Trent Richardson. And that was sort of the epitome, I would say, of those four years under McIlwain. Didn't put a ton on the quarterback, but still asked the position to make just enough plays, and it didn't hurt either that in 08 you welcome in a wide receiver by the name of Julio Jones. Yeah, Julio definitely helped out. But, yeah, John Parker Wilson came in. You know, that he had some games, and Alabama had some games. They were pretty close to going to the to the national championship his last year. I mean, they were ahead of Florida, I think. Ladies About third, a quarter third. away, yeah. Yeah, and they just – and that was a – you know what? That was a – that wasn't – that was a great Florida team. So, Alabama to be put in there, great coach, and, you know, he did a good job leading. Obviously, you know, you obviously transitioned from there. Um I was at that Utah game, which was not a pretty game, and yeah, uh, that was same. not that was not the pretty. It was a good time in New Orleans, of course, but it wasn't. Uh, that first quarter was pretty. When rough. you see when you see the team out on Bourbon Street every time you're out on Bourbon Street, that kind of tells you the team is out on Bourbon Street a good bit. And but you know, <laughs> you know, you've seen that. That's to be expected. You saw it a couple of years ago, I think, with Georgia. You've seen teams sure. when you're playing for everything. And every game, remember every game. Oh, I'd have been out. I'm yeah, out. every game at the end of the year for Alabama was just like the Super Bowl. So once the Super Bowl's over, you go to Utah. Hey, and nobody knew Utah, and Utah was okay. They weren't a great Utah team, but they were a pretty good team. So nobody really knew. Uh, you know, Alabama fans. You know, they don't. It's like playing a you know a big 
It's like playing UCLA in their heyday if you're, you know, in basketball. They don't think much of Alabama, even if they're good. So that's sort of what you ran into. Yeah, that was a hundred times bigger game for Utah than it was Alabama. And I think it showed up on the field and it probably had something to do with Utah eventually landing a spot in the in the Pac-12 conference. It was it was a high magnitude game for the Utes uh, in, in that in that Sugar Bowl, no doubt about it. So you get into Here's where I get a little interested in how things work when I go back in retrospect and look at numbers and consider performances. I wasn't as high on Greg McElroy going into this podcast as I'm going to be coming out of it. And I'll tell you primarily why is the 2009 season, the way that I remembered it a decade plus in my rearview mirror was that Greg was very much both hands on the steering wheel get the ball to Mark Ingram. And I think a lot of that had to do with really just one month in that season, the month of October in that 2009 season, the Alabama passing game was anemic at best average, just 125 passing yards per game in the month of October that season, two touchdown passes, two interceptions and four games in that month, even the South Carolina game in that October, you remember Mark Ingram lining up at the Wildcat and essentially taking over that game by himself. So I probably put too much on just one month, but when you look at McElroy in that season, overall 2,500 passing yards, 17 touchdown passes, four interceptions and bottom line, when Alabama needed Greg McElroy to be really good against Auburn, Florida, not so much against Texas in the national championship game, but that stretch of Auburn and Florida is probably how we should remember McElroy in that 2009 season more than anything else. Well, I agree. You know, I, you know, I'm a recruiting guy, so I always remember McElroy was the one that waited to see what Tebow did and then flipped to Bama. You know, that was always sort of what stood out to me. He had a little. You know, he had a little toughness to him. You know, a lot of kids would have too much pride for that. You remember the the quarterback from over in Tuscaloosa, Chris Smelly, where they made it a huge deal and committed before Tebow. So we knew he had a little bit of toughness. He'd grown up. His dad was with the Cowboys, grown up around sports. And, yeah, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't what you'd call sexy. Um, but he had moments. He had played some of the best hip-hopping down the sideline um, against Florida the year we they finally yeah unseated them I mean that was such a sweet play had some good throws wasn't blessed with a big arm wasn't a wasn't a terrific athlete but was definitely smart um guy spent a couple years in the NFL holding a pad too I believe didn't he no doubt about it cash some checks in the National Football League uh with the Jets I believe primarily I think but he might have got a start I might be wrong but it I seems, think he did too I, yeah, yeah. I think Sanchez did something might have been else. on the heels of the butt fumble Yes, that might have got Sanchez. Somebody else had to start after that. That might have got him uh, benched. <laughs> but you get into 2010, and this is the first year under Saban that we see a real quarterback-centric offense. Because the run game, as crazy as it sounds now, when you hear the names, Mark Ingram, Trent Richardson, Eddie Lacy, you had some injuries among those three guys, just never really got it going on the ground in 2010. And also, you had a junior at that point in Julio Jones, who was certainly more than ready to take on more of the load. He did that with over 1,100 receiving yards in 2010, seven touchdowns for Julio. And McElroy flourished, 71% completion rate, nearly 3,000 passing yards, 20 touchdowns, five interceptions. Um, again, it didn't translate to a great year 
record-wise because that Alabama team lost three games in 2010, but couldn't really point to the quarterback position as a reason for that because I think McElroy and, and Julio and, and that passing game had to carry that offense more than anybody probably would have expected. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, that you know, that lad, that that three loss team was one of the weirdest teams. Um, one of the weirdest teams I've ever seen. You remember what they did against Michigan State? Just couldn't seem how the whole year just they just couldn't seem to get right, you know. Ran into a buzzsaw. Um turned South around. Carolina. Yeah. I mean that you know what? South Carolina played a really good game. It wasn't They're just gonna beat anybody Alabama. that day. Yeah, yeah, South Carolina played a good game. They made plays. Steven Garcia's never been better. Uh, that environment was was off the chain. Alabama was still feeling theirself. So just walking into that environment was tough. But by the time that season ended and they got everybody healthy, I mean, they just completely dismantled Michigan State in the bowl game. So there was so much talent there. Uh, possibly could have repeated with some 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 better luck. But, you know, winning that first championship at Alabama in like 17 years, having all that off-the-field uh, notoriety, autographs and everything that went with it. It's almost that letdown after winning the Super Bowl. Um, you know, it's just hard to come back focused. Yeah, and the defense, we're going to talk so much about quarterbacks, obviously, today. But that 2010 defense, as we talked about before, was going through some mass transition, too, especially in the secondary and at corner. And that wasn't a good thing when you consider – you know, what South Carolina and some other offenses that year were particularly strong at. That 2010 team actually hammered Florida here in Tuscaloosa, but Florida offensively post-Tebow was going through some upheaval. So that was actually a really good matchup for that Alabama team. South Carolina, in retrospect, when you think about it, uh, that really wasn't the case. So you get into 2011, McElroy moves on. You've got a competition between A.J. McCarron and Phillip Sims going into that 2011 season. A.J. eventually takes it over when Alabama travels to Penn State in week two. A.J. becomes the guy, and for the three seasons uh, that pretty much were, were in a part of that, A.J. Uh, never really looked back. And I'll tell you this, too. I know at one point in 2009, Tim, you may know more about this, A.J. as a true freshman had reached a point behind Greg McElroy that if something had happened to McElroy where there was a, uh, you know, a need for an extended stretch of quarterback play other than Greg, A.J. was going to be the guy, although we continued to see Star Jackson out there in sort of mop-up opportunities. Being able to save that year of eligibility for A.J. when you look back, um, well, that, that gave – they gave Alabama an extra year of AJ in 2013. It did. I think that year, especially maturity standpoint, um, physically, AJ was always, you know, he's a kid that played three sports and a slim, slim kid had to put on some weight. And he's obviously filled out, you know, filled out nicely after his 18 year. But a guy playing three sports, I think all the way through his senior year. I know he was a really good baseball player, played basketball. I don't remember if his senior year. So a guy that needed to fill out. So that redshirt year, and also the maturity level. You know, A.J. was a big deal in Mobile, so he had to sort of be sort of, you know, sort of set the tone for what it was going to take to run that uh, to run that offense. And he did. I think watching, you know, being humbled a little bit, not that, you know, not I'm saying in general for anybody, but watching and learning has always been a good experience for most people. No doubt. And A.J.'s 2011 was pretty similar 
to Greg McElroy's 2009. Offensively, Alabama was built kind of the same way. You had Mark Ingram being such a dominant presence there in 2009. 2011, it was Trent in the running game. Um, but A.J. completes 67% of his passes, 2,600 yards, 16-5 and five from touchdowns to interception ratio. So, again, pretty similar to Greg in 2009 and that pretty much capped the run of McIlwain as the offensive coordinator over four seasons at UA winning that national championship and really capping it with a game plan I thought from Mac against LSU down in New Orleans that might have been his best over his four years because um, you know look you've got that defense that you had in 2011 you're obviously going to play to that strength uh, but but you know, kind of getting AJ some confidence, building throws early, in early that game on. Brad, yes, Brad Smelly, and then Norwood comes on for Marquise Mays, and it just seemed like you could you could almost see the growth of AJ. It seemed like with just within that game, Tim. Yeah, I think he's a little irritated from losing the nine to six game. Um, obviously, a motivated Alabama team, and hey, let's not kid ourselves. LSU was a nasty defense. Oh, no doubt. Uh, scoring 21 points on them was a task in itself. But A.J. made some throws, uh, often picking on the Honey Badger, who's who's a fantastic college player. He's a fantastic NFL player, just won a Super Bowl. So often, you know, finding ways. That was a mismatch with Norwood going right over the top with him. Not an easy task to do. So obviously a motivated Alabama team um, in New Orleans in a game that was never really contested. You know, the defense, of course, was just at an, at another level that game. They probably were irritated because they did plenty to win the first game. So I think they made sure, you know, by not scoring anything, they couldn't get beat. So, yeah, definitely a great game plan attacking. You know, I'll never forget attacking, you know, Honey Badger, who, who was, to me, their best player, you know, heart and soul of that team. Sort of took a little bit out of LSU, I felt. Yeah, even if the 50 had been the goal line in that game, Tim, LSU would have scored one time. Put it that way. I mean, that's how. Yes, that that's was, how that good that, that 2011 was defense game. was. Yeah, yeah. Was complete game for Alabama. No doubt, Jeremy Shelley with five field goals for the Crimson Tide, and then you had the capper on the Trent Richardson touchdown run in that one. You get into 2012 again. McElwain moves on, goes to Colorado State as a head coach. AJ moves on to the National Football League. In comes, excuse me, AJ's still around, but Doug Nussmeyer comes in to replace Jim McElwain. And you add a wide receiver. You start the South Florida pipeline, Tim, with a guy by the name of Amari Cooper. And with Cooper needing a couple of three or four games to kind of get his legs under him. But as he came on throughout that 2012 season, so did A.J.'s numbers. 2,933 passing yards for A.J. in year two as a starter. 30 touchdowns to just three interceptions. And something I look at heavily with all these guys Yards per pass attempt starts to climb at this point. 9.3 per attempt for A.J. And, um, you know, you cap it with A.J. being exceptional down the stretch, especially when you talk about the win over Georgia in Atlanta and then certainly the blowout of Notre Dame in the national championship game. Yeah, I mean, you know, you you know, Amari was such, you know, the funniest thing about Amari, I think I've told this before, but I had so many – friends with fans of the other schools like I don't understand why we don't try to guard him I don't understand why they're not focusing on him and you know because Amari was seemingly always open like wide open like nobody was even paying him any attention so I just don't realize 
you know, it took, you know, I think Alabama fans did, but the guy was such a smooth route runner. Um, so smooth with his route, so quick. I mean, his feet were unbelievable. And, and, and AJ had those nice back-to-back blankets to, uh, to, you know, to have that, that safe sure. valve when you need somebody. Cause Hey, Coop could go up and get it. I mean, Coop could go up in a crowd. You could toss it up there. You saw, uh, Blake Sims did that for, for a year, just threw it up and Amari go and get it. So, um, definitely helped him out there. And you could see AJ maturing and get more confidence as he went along. And Saban had more confidence in him. Yeah. In terms of just a total offense, hard to go against that 2012 group because you had two 1,000-yard rushers in Eddie Lacy and a freshman in TJ Yeldon. You had a 3,000-yard passer in AJ. You had essentially a 1,000-yard receiver in Amari Cooper. I think he finished a yard short, maybe of 1,000 in that true freshman season in 2012. So, that was an offense for all time, especially at the time in, in 2012, an offense that could really, really do it all. Let's get into uh, let's get into the 2013 season with AJ. 67% his final season as a starter, little more than 3,000 yards, 28 touchdowns to seven interceptions, 9.1 per pass attempt. You know, in retrospect. In terms of just his place in an offense, the 2012 season may have been like the rest of uh, that group, kind of the the best that we saw uh, from an A.J. McCarron-directed offense. But he was still really good in 2013. A.J. moves on to the National Football League. Nussmeyer moves on as well. Here comes Lane Kiffin, Tim, in 2014, and you talk about uncertainty at the quarterback position. After three years with A.J. McCarron, you're looking at sort of a group of candidates that are headlined by Blake Sims, who we've seen at a number of positions other than quarterback to that point in his Alabama career. Uh, Jake Coker was coming on board, but had to finish up that spring of 2014 at FSU before being able to make his way on campus in the summer. Uh, and, and to think about in retrospect what that offense was able to accomplish Given what your opinion was probably coming out of the 8A game in April of 2014, uh, it's still one that that sort of boggles the mind, Tim, what they were able to get done. Yeah, I mean, Blake, you know, Blake was that recruit where when you watched him, you didn't know where he was going to play. You know, everybody, I tell you what, we didn't really talk about him at quarterback, oddly enough. We talked about him at wide receiver, at safety, possibly running back. You yep. saw Alabama bounce him around everywhere. It never really was a possibility, we thought, of him playing quarterback. And ideally, I don't think that's what they wanted to do. But, man, that boy could throw it. I mean, he would drop back. <laughs> he had a certain – there was a certain – I'm always going to be partial to the games he played with because there was a certain playground, have fun, go out and make something happen about him that we weren't used to seeing because A.J. was so methodical. You know, A.J. was like a surgeon. You know, he was just systematically following the system, making plays and doing smart things and all that. Blake was just, man, he would just drop back, run around and sling it. And towards the end of the year where he played in some of the biggest games, uh, um, was it Missouri that year? They beat so bad. Yeah, Yeah, in the championship game, and he was MVP maybe. Yeah, he was the MVP, and you, know, you think about it now, this is a guy who won a head-to-head matchup with Dak Prescott in a year in which Mississippi State actually ascended to number one in the rankings in 2014. On the road, went on the road, didn't they? Uh, that was in Tuscaloosa, but oh, won, won, a shut, won, won a shootout with Auburn 
I mean, if you would have told me before that 2014 yes. season, Alabama's going to score 55 points against Auburn and that in was November, a, that was a I would have laughed you out of the park. That was yeah. a shootout along the lines of the OK Corral tombstone. That was, now, a, that was a major battle. And then, I mean, even played well against Ohio State that year. Yeah, they did. If, if there was a, probably a complaint from the Alabama fan base in that one, it was that Derrick Henry just didn't get enough touches because Derrick Henry was a monster in that game against Ohio State. And uh, you had an opportunity there, and you had an interception there in the end zone that, that hurt you uh, as Alabama was trying to get back into that thing late. But, man, you talk about, again, you know, some options that you had. I, you got to look at – at Amari Cooper in 2014. I mean, Amari put numbers up in 2014. I don't, you know, Jerry Judy, Devontae Smith, Waddle, uh, Ruggs, all these great receivers. I mean, you think back to 2014 for Cooper, and you got to give Lane Kiffin a lot of credit for this. That was the guy in that offense, and he got 124 touches in terms of receptions, 1,727 receiving yards, 16 touchdowns. So as great as Jamar Chase was this past season for LSU, this is something Cooper pretty much did six years ago at Alabama. And he did it with opponents knowing that he was the guy. There wasn't another two or three guys to go along with him. It was pretty much Amari that year. Yeah. I mean, you had that one guy. That's, you know, that again, that's a, <laughs> that's a season where Amari seemingly was open all the time. I mean, he was, you'd see him 10 or 12 yards open, and even Alabama fans would be shocked at, that how he did it. But again, if you're watching Amari off the line, great footwork, you still see it in the NFL, his get off, his, the way his separation, he's so smooth when he accelerates, uh, just, you know, just a great, he was a great football player for Alabama. Like you said, started that South Florida pipeline that has continued and yeah. has, has been great to Alabama. Speaking of that, uh, South Florida pipeline, we saw it actually continue the very next year. Calvin Ridley comes up as a true freshman, 2015, becomes Jake Coker's favorite target. Ardarius Stewart, a really good player at wide receiver for that national championship team in 2015. That was an odd start, though, to that season, Tim, as Coker was the starter against Wisconsin in the season opener. Then the decision is made to start Cooper Bateman against Ole Miss here in Tuscaloosa. That one still has a lot of people even around the program, I think, scratching their head a little bit in retrospect. But Coker comes off the bench in that game, plays pretty well. He's the guy the rest of the season. Jake Coker ends up going undefeated as a starter in his lone season behind center. Um, Alabama's 14-1, and uh, but Coker didn't start that one loss, and so he's 14-0 and as a starter in 2015 and passes for over 3,000 yards, 21 touchdowns. Again, a team and an offense similar to maybe 2009, 2011, because Derrick Henry with 395 carries in 2015, obviously the the focal point of that offense. Yeah, I think the thing that stood out the most with with a guy like Coker is how much heart he had, and you could see that team rallying around him because that guy, uh, I've met him a few times. That is a massive human being. He is he is big. I mean. I've met a lot of a lot of the Alabama players or college players over the years. Coker's just a big dude, big hands, big, you know, he's just sort of got that big Rottweiler look about him. So, I mean, that was a guy that didn't step out of bounds. He dropped his head and ran over you. And, you know, he sort of got better as the season went along. And then, you know, then towards the end in the playoffs, he had a little something special there, I think, that kept that team fired up. You had a lot of motivation, you had a good defense, 
but I really felt that emotionally he was their leader. He won that football team and more importantly, that coaching staff with the way he sold it out after coming off the bench against Ole Miss, even in a loss, Alabama benefited greatly that night here in Tuscaloosa in establishing its unquestioned starting quarterback and one of its unquestioned leaders on the offensive side of the ball for that season. Coker moves on. Again, you're sort of in stopgap mode there for a couple of years after A.J. McCarron. You go from Blake Sims. You go to Jake Coker. In comes Jalen Hurts. And at that point, Blake Barnett has been in the program for a year. There's a lot of expectation that Blake, highly rated recruits going to be the guy going into his second year in the program actually starts that game against USC out in Arlington, Texas to open the season. Jalen comes in in the first quarter and pretty much takes over from there. And it's, it's Jalen's job for essentially the, the, those two seasons, 16 and 17. Yeah, there's no doubt. I don't, I just don't think Blake had it like sort of that, you know, we say a lot, Alabama's not for everybody. I think at the first sign of adversity, you know, I mean, we're talking four years, four games into his, his career, and he's already, you know, out the door. So he must have saw something in Jalen uh, that scared him, that made him make him think he wasn't going to beat him back out. He was right. He was never going to he was never going to beat out Jalen at any point. So um, sort of weird to see, you know, he looked and I don't know how much is that's just his facial expressions or him. But, you know, a lot of people thought he looked scared to death against USC before he was replaced. I don't know if that was just being on a big stage or the helmet or all that, but obviously Jalen came in and, and, and sort of established himself on that team as that, you know, as the quarterback on that team pretty quickly. Saw a little bit of a transformation within the offense too, in that 2016 season, Kiffin adapting to Jalen's strong suits, especially early on in his career. So that meant a lot more in the way of RPO and quarterback runs Jalen with 954 rushing yards that season, 13 touchdowns on the ground, which led the Crimson Tide in that department. Even with Brian Dable coming in in 2017 to replace Lane after he moved on to Florida Atlantic, and you actually had the one game in between all that with Steve Sarkeesian in the national championship matchup with Clemson down in Tampa. But Dable comes in known more as a pure pro type guy, but sticks with the approach for the most part of, you know, keeping Jalen very much involved in the rushing attack. Jalen very efficient as a passer, throwing for 20, uh, 2,081 yards, 17 touchdowns, just one interception in 17. But the passing game and the explosiveness of it for the second straight season, as you move down the stretch of 2017, Alabama just not able to produce enough and that opened the door, as we know, for Tua Tonga Vailoa. Yeah, you know, with me, I love Jalen. I like the way he played. At times, I felt he played tight. You know, I don't know if that, that was the fear of turning the ball over. Uh, he should have felt pretty comfortable with his uh, with his position on that team. I don't know if he felt a little bit like Tua looking over his shoulder or what. But he just felt, you know, to me, just at times felt tight. And we saw that because when he – when he he had to play make a play like Mississippi State that year, he made he made one of the most beautiful throws I've ever seen yeah. in a clutch situation. You know he could do it, and you saw him do it at uh you know you know saw him doing it in Oklahoma. So I think his nature was was a little different than what Alabama wanted to do because if he's not open at first look, he was going to pull it and run because he could do that. You bring in Tua, and Tua doesn't think anybody's not open. So completely different mindset. Tua's obviously gifted. 
from that Brett Favre school of make a play, um, you know, for the good and the bad. So, just, you know, and of course, there's just something special about Tua. Uh, we just saw him go fifth in the draft despite the injury. And um, we saw him do so many things. And I've said this before. I don't think anybody's really going to appreciate Tua as much as now, as much as they will six, seven, eight years down the road. I think yeah. – back and see these highlights and it's really going to hit you because right now if you're an Alabama your fan you're still thinking what might have been never got a full season of Tua um a healthy season the whole nine yards so but I think when you look back from a talent standpoint there really hasn't been a better quarterback no and not not my lifetime for sure and uh it's just too hard to look away from Tua's ability to maximize all that talent around the quarterback position the last couple of years. You know, if, if you didn't have the sort of wealth of wide receiver talent that you had with Judy and Smith and Ruggs and Waddle here of late, um, you know, you could be more of that just sort of spread, power spread offense that you were in even 2016 in Jalen's first year as a starter, but it became pretty clear, especially in the second half of that win over Georgia and the overtime, the iconic throw to Devontae Smith to win that national championship game, that you just weren't going to be able to keep a guy with that type of dynamic ability throwing the football on the sideline. And so the decision was made going into 2018, not only with a change at quarterback, with Mike Loxley also taking over as the offensive coordinator, there in 2018 and and you got to see pretty much as you said though even in 18 Tua was dealing with injury issues multiple issues he still throws for nearly 4,000 yards um, 43 touchdown passes to just six interceptions averages over 11 yards per attempt and then with all that being said you get to that 2018 SEC championship game and who comes off the bench to save the day no one other than Jalen Hurts. Seemed appropriate. Uh, poetic, for sure, in a lot of ways. I mean, seriously, if that was a movie we were watching, me and you would have walked out saying BS. <laughs> Hollywood is so full of it. The way Tua took over for Jalen, Jalen took over for Tua, we would never believe that storyline. I mean, it's that far-fetched, but it happened. <laughs> it did, and you saw the maturity in Jalen uh, in so many different ways. First of all, uh, the willingness to stick it out through that 2018 season and then to be rewarded like he was. Uh, and be ready. Yeah, he was ready. And that was dire. That was dire at that point. I don't think there's any doubt about it in the fourth quarter of that game. And, and also to do it largely with his arm. You know, after so many of the questions about his ability to stand in there and make throws, especially at, at critical moments, uh, to answer that the way he did. And, you know, I think Tua, I think Jalen benefited from being around Tua. I, I think it was very much a two-way street. I think it was great for Tua uh, as a young quarterback initially, but then for Jalen to work around a guy on a daily basis with that type of ability as a passer, Jalen's a competitive dude. And, and you don't, if you're a competitive person, you don't want to get shown up whether it's the practice field, game day, whatever. So just to set, sort of maintain, uh, you know, a, a connection uh, with Tua as a passer, you had to bring it on a daily basis. That had to be nothing but a good thing for Jalen uh, from that perspective. And and it showed up in his one of his final appearances 
uh, as a quarterback at Alabama there late in 2018. So you get into 2019, Tua, the unquestioned starter, Mac Jones, the backup a year ago. We know the injuries that Tua continued to have to deal with throughout that season as well. Silver lining and all that, Tim, you, you got an elongated look at Mac Jones. And with that, there's a lot of positivity at the quarterback position for Alabama, even with Tua moving on to the NFL. Yeah, I mean, Mac was thrown into some rough situations, having to go to Auburn um, against, you know, always a great crowd there, always a good home field advantage for them playing Michigan. I mean, he was thrown in there and made some plays. And I know he he had some turnovers, so some people harp on that. But when you look at that guy, the thing that stood out, and I said this from for the whole year, I've said this from day one, uh, Mac Jones has the respect of his team. They like Mac Jones. He has that locker room, and that's a huge part of football uh, on top of that. He returns a lot of talent. I know a lot of people have written him off, and this will work into our mailbag, but a lot of people have sort of written him off for Bryce Young. And don't get me wrong, there's not a bigger fan of Bryce Young. I love him. I think he's got all the talent in the world. It's going to be a tough situation uh, or decision, in my opinion. I mean, it's going to be some some good on both sides, some bad on both sides. So between Bryce and uh Mac, but it's a great situation to be in if you're Alabama. You know, you're sort of going to get the best of both worlds and get a chance to work it out. And also, I think not having the spring <clears throat> plays into Mac's hands as well because Alabama staff didn't get to see Bryce at the college level. So there's a lot to like about Mac. And again, if you're looking for that manager who can make some plays, and you've discussed McElroy and some of these other guys, I mean, Mac sort of fits that that design. I mean, you have four returning offensive linemen. Two of the best wide receivers in the country. You have Najee Harris. You got five-star Trey Sanders, who's been injured, the running back, three running back signings. So there's a lot to like about that offense for Mac. But also on the same side, it works in favor of Bryce because he's yeah. got safety blankets written all over the place as well. It's a great, a great situation to break in a new starter, regardless. If you're in a position where you've got a veteran looking to take that next step, it works well with Mac Jones. If you're in a position where you're sort of almost forced to go with a freshman quarterback, it doesn't set up bad at all for Bryce Young. Hey, you mentioned the mailbag. We're going to get to that next. When T Watts and TR, part of the Built by Bama online podcast, returns right after this. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. All right, Tim, let's get right into that mailbag. You sort of touched on our first item in the mailbag today. RTR12 wanted our opinion on Mac Jones versus Bryce Young. I think we pretty much outlined that there at the end of the previous segment. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just to be determined. I mean, two talented guys. Bryce obviously comes in. You know, you could almost look at a little bit sort of like Jalen and the Tua situation uh, Mac obviously didn't start the whole year like Jalen did, but Max, I mean, that's a lot of experience Mac Jones has, um, not to mention the backup stuff he got during the rest of the year, but that's some tough starts. I mean, he went against Jim Harbaugh, 
He went against Gus Mal on a new at a neutral field. He went against Gus Malzahn and Kevin Steele in Auburn. So he's seen some challenges. So he's got some good experience. Of course, Bryce is just Bryce. He's not Tua, but he's pretty close as far as the intangible goes. He puts the ball where he wants to throw it, same way Tua did. Um, probably more risk adverse, which is a good thing. Not as daring, you know. To, Tua just had so much Brett Favre in him. You kept waiting for him to throw a pass right-handed. You know what I mean? He was that kind of guy, just fearless, which you, which you love until you know until he turns it over, then you get mad at him. But um, yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be a good, fun battle, and I think it's too early to call the winner for sure. Yeah, I think that with the the pandemic and the loss of spring practice, um, as advanced as Bryce Young is, and I think we're going to learn, continue to learn just how advanced he is at least to start any semblance of a season in 2020 that we have, it's hard to bet against Mac Jones not being the first quarterback out there in 2020. From there, you know, I, I think it's 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 it'll be very intriguing to see how how that works itself out. Crimson D247 in the mailbag here on the Built by Bama online podcast, which, by the way, we would love for you and appreciate it. If you would subscribe to the podcast, leave us a rating and a review while you're there, that would be very much appreciated as well. Crimson D247, Tim, who are the top offensive linemen? Alabama has a great chance of signing for the 2021 recruiting cycle. I guess there's a couple brothers out in Texas that UA is in pretty good shape with. Yeah, you know, you keep looking at, at this offensive line class. It's been kind of quiet. I mean, the whole class is there's five commitments, but the Rockermeyer brothers out there in Texas are really good. I mean, most talk about the oldest brother a little bit more, Tommy, more than the other brother, but the other guy's a nice little interior player. Alabama seemingly in pretty good shape. They do have Austin connections, very deep Austin, Texas connections. So they're, you know, they're one of those kids that grew up, you know, root for the Longhorns where their dad played. So still a tough pull, but Alabama's in good shape. You look at guys like uh, North Shore's offensive lineman, Jaden Roberts. You know, he's not getting a lot of talk. And it's weird because it's sort of similar to uh, Damian George, who went to the same school. This is another big 300-plus-pound kid, 6'5". He's a monster. Unlike George, uh, George, who played on the outside, he's going to be an interior guy. So they have some guys. J.C. Latham, the number one offensive tackle in the country, they're battling for. And, again, I think when it comes to recruiting, I think the way that Alabama had this set up heading into this situation, I think this situation hurt them a lot in the fact they had such big plans, especially for the new strength and conditioning duo. And I'll say this again. I don't care. Everybody can say what they want, but – Nick Saban feels like he hit a massive home run with that hire, and there's a lot of college coaches who agree. So I think they're adjusting to that, doing some of these Zoom meetings and all that. So I think recruiting will continue to pick up, but you know the offensive line's off to a slow start, but they'll be fine. TL Doss, two in the mailbag, wants to know, aside from Christian Barmore and Dylan Moses, who along the front seven for Alabama is in for a breakout year, uh, he mentions guys like potentially Ali Caho, King Wakuda on the edge there. Um, I think ideally with an emphasis for me on Wakuda and TL Doss to ask about an over under for sacks of three and a half or Wakuda in 2020. Yeah, I mean, that would that would be huge. I'll say this. If it isn't King Wakuda on the edge, I would lean more to perhaps one of the the really young, true freshman edge defenders that Alabama signed in that 2020 class. And 
No, Christopher Allen's a guy that's been around as well. Uh, haven't seen much in the way of dynamic playmaking ability from him yet, but a stout edge defender, no doubt, in Chris Allen. Um, I would I would look probably more at the edge pass rushers in that front seven. You need DJ Dale to certainly take another step right there in the middle. I think that's where it all starts because that's where Alabama's biggest problems were a year ago because of injury and experience right up the middle of that defense for me, Tim. Yeah, I'm still hoping LeBron Ray, you know, has that breakout year, that healthy year. Talent's obviously there. Guys had a lot of bad luck, but he's a guy, if he could step up. Now, there's a lot of young guys, you know, we can throw out there, but if LeBron can step up, help solidify that, especially with Barmore, who, you know, Barmore's got first-round potential. I said this when Alabama signed him. That kid's got first-round potential. He's got that explosion. He's got them big paws he puts on you. He moves the crowd. And he's and he plays pissed off. He wants to he wants to tackle you. So LeBron would be a nice little addition there and give those younger guys a little chance to grow. But yeah, anybody on the edge that can flash that has a little speed and there's a bunch of them coming in. Will Anderson, I you know I'm not huge on hyping up true freshmen, but this guy's a nasty nasty human being. Uh, um, works hard, great work ethic, great attitude. Uh, so he's going to have a chance to impact as well. Yeah, Ray, it's all about health. He, he struggled with that over the last couple of three years. If he can have an extended stretch of that, we'll get to see, the. I think, the LeBron Ray everyone has anticipated seeing. Um, I'll give you Byron Young, too. Justin be Byron Young. I mean, that's the silver lining in everything you saw a year ago with all that inexperience. I mean, these guys ought to be really, really good in their second seasons in the program. Also, Kind of in connection with a question we were going to touch on, a topic we were going to touch on. Uh, if you had to pick one Sopranos character that you could have a beer with, Tim, uh, which guy would that be? Which gal, maybe, would that be? That's part of T.L. Doss's contribution here in the mailbag. He asked, can you imagine a weekend in Atlantic City with Christopher Moltisanti as your wingman? Uh, yeah, I can imagine it. I, I just can't imagine anything after that, probably, coming down the pike. That would probably be the end of it. If you spend a, a weekend with Chrissy and AC. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing with, with Chris. The thing with him is like, I think he's a small dose kind of guy where you can be. <laughs> in, I, think, I think, hey, I feel Tony's the same way. I doubt I could spend some yeah. in a room with that guy. Um, I really like, I think Bobby would be my guy. I think, me and, I think me and Big Bobby would sit there and discuss. I think we would go to Vegas or New Orleans or Atlantic City, wherever. And we'd sit out there and we'd people watch and we'd eat ice cream. And we would just, you know, shoot the crap. He's one of my favorite characters because he has no he really has no idea of who Tony is because he asks him questions. You know, Tony wants to rip his head off, but he, he just throws him out there to ask him. He's one of my favorite guys. Kind of like Chrissy. I know it wouldn't probably end well, but I'd still go with Paulie just because I feel like I would laugh the entire time. I could listen to Paulie Walnuts order a Manhattan. You know, and I would probably laugh for 15 minutes, just the, yeah, the process so, of him doing it. I can't get over Paulie like eating the breath mints that time they were locked in the van in the middle <laughs> of the woods. You know, what I mean, I mean, Chris put a gun to his throat. I think we yeah. forget he had made Chris mad enough to stick a gun at his throat. I just think you have to do it all Paulie's way. Yeah, you know, Paulie. I do think Gloria, you know, would would have been a fun time in Atlantic City because when she was. When she yeah. was fun and she was happy, she was a really what she was a really great character. And all Annabella Sciorra was just unbelievably hot in that character because she had always been like the sweet, 
innocent girl in every movie, and then here she is, wild and crazy. So, yeah, great questions. She had the Mercedes Benz hookups too, so you yeah, could travel. Absolutely, you could travel and style. Her saving me, you would be rolling. Yeah, yeah. Jared Burns in the mailbag as we wrap things up here. If you guys, he asked, didn't become writers, writers, boy, that's a, a term used, I think, loosely with, with Tim Air and I. What, <laughs> what would you have been career-wise? What would what would we be doing, Tim, if we weren't doing BOL? Man, you know, I never knew. I've had 50 jobs. I, was, I always wanted to experience new jobs. Um, I've did a little bit of everything and I was always restless till I got here. I do know I, I, I want to be working, uh, from home. That's the easiest. I'm one of those guys that's easy to self-motivate. I think you're the same way. I don't really need someone to wake me. You know, most people do. Most people can't work at home. I mean, we had, you know, we've seen guys come and go in this business pretty quickly who thinks it's all about sleeping till, you know, noon, eating your fruity pebbles, going for your walk, <laughs> squeezing an hour of work. So, um, I know I'd have been my own boss in some regard. I ran my own roofing company at once, uh, one time, and I loved it. So, you know, I'm kind of the same way. I've done everything. I've owned a sports bar. I've uh, worked in uh, telephony with uh, the phone company in the past. Uh, I kind of figured I'd be doing something in sports, though. So if I wasn't writing, I feel like I would be probably doing something in coaching i think i would probably be driving uh, a school bus on an elementary school route in the mornings and afternoons and then probably coaching special teams at a middle school or a high school somewhere probably something like that back, if i could go back i'd play korean baseball and that's what we're going to talk about next because ham bam in the mailbag he wants to know tim he needs an update on your kbo watching and do you have a team, a favorite team that you're following? You know, I, I didn't at first, but I see the NC Dinos constantly. And Seems like they, they're like the Braves. They, or they the are on. They are. Let me tell you, they're fun, and they have a mascot called the. Uh, he's the. They nicknamed the Swole Daddy, and their mascot is definitely uh, taking the Alex Rodriguez uh, fitness program. So um, that's yeah, your that's your squad. Team. I still love it. Those guys play. They have fun. They make crazy good plays. Definitely not as fast and strong. Like, nobody throws 100 where everybody in the major throws 100. But it's still, I love it every night. I was trying to find that soccer game the other night where they had the sex doll, the sex doll fans, <laughs> you know. I never saw the problem with that. Wild times. Look, you can't just readily get dolls that look like humans easily there's only a few options yeah they had them dressed in regular clothes they didn't come out there and yeah. they didn't come out there in the negligee and stilettos they were sitting there in regular clothes <laughs> so i don't have an issue with it with it in fact the korean baseball has cheerleaders and the cheerleaders are dressed more scantily than the sex dolls were so for anybody <laughs> that didn't follow this korean soccer came back and they for stands, they blew up some sex dolls and slapped uniforms on them, regular clothes, and put them in the stands. Um, and they had to apologize, but they did not have to apologize to me. I, was I okay can't with think it. of a, a better way to get out of here on this Thursday than with that. <laughs> Always enjoy it, Tim. Thanks, Appreciate Travis. It. Appreciate you, man.
There you go, Tim Watts. We appreciate you as well listening to us here on the Built by Bama online podcast, which you can subscribe to anywhere you do your podcasting. We would certainly appreciate a rating and a review while you're there. That would help us out. For Tim Watts, Travis Schreier, thanks again. We'll talk to you again real soon with the Built by Bama online podcast returns.